Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe on your favorite podcast provider and leave favorable reviews. So today we're going to be talking about a hot topic, which is vaping and recent uh, regulatory and state actions regarding vaping. And so to join us is my colleague at R Street, uh, Carrie Wade, who is the Director of Harm Reduction Policy with R Street. So uh, Carrie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so there's a number of recent events, both at the federal level and then some states like Michigan that I want to talk about. But I want to begin by talking a little bit big picture. So you're the Director of Harm Reduction Policy. That's a name that may be unfamiliar or concept that may be unfamiliar to some of our listeners. So what is harm reduction? So harm reduction is the idea that you don't have to take an abstinence-only approach or a prohibition approach towards uh, risky behaviors, that there can be public health benefits by simply using drugs in a safer way or doing sexual behaviors in a, sa- in a safer way that minimize risks of disease or um, you know illnesses or deaths that are associated with risk behaviors. Uh, on a non-drug level or you know, in a very normal way, we can see that harm reduction, we implement this every day. Of An example that we often is often used is um, seatbelts in cars. So, you know, if you get in a car accident and you're not wearing a seatbelt, you're very likely to be injured or um, it could be fatal. But using a seatbelt doesn't decrease the chance of necessarily getting into a car accident, but it makes it a lot safer if you are in a car accident. Okay. And so I guess when we're talking about vaping, the harm reduction component there would be if people switch from smoking cigarettes to vaping, it's far less bad for you to be vaping than than cigarettes. So that would be the harm reduction aspect of it. Correct. Um, And it's not just limited to e-cigarettes or vaping. It's there's a whole range of reducers products that contain nicotine out there that are a lot safer than combustible cigarettes. And the main reason for that is the lack of combustion. Oral products like Snus, which is historically a Swedish product that is like a pouch and you put it in between your gum and your cheek and has a lot less toxic chemicals than uh, combustible cigarettes or heat not burn, which heats tobacco to deliver uh, vapor, but it doesn't combust tobacco to deliver smoke. And then we also have e-cigarettes that are an electronic device that has e-liquid that is aerosolized through a heating coil. Again, that the e-cigarette doesn't employ combustion, so you don't get all these chemicals that are released with combustion. So I, I'm not uh, a vapor myself, so I'm vaguely familiar with some of it. So I guess part of the issue is, you know, with cigarettes, they taste like cigarettes. <laughs> but uh, with vaping, you know, you can get the, you know, nicotine itself, I guess, doesn't really taste like anything. There are, I guess, vape products that taste like cigarettes, but there's also all sorts of other flavors that are out there on, on the market. Right. And that's one of the attractive qualities of an e-cigarette is that you can really customize the flavors to be something that will keep you away from uh, to the tobacco flavors that are associated with combustible cigarettes or the menthol flavors that are associated with combustible cigarettes. So what you see is usually um, a trajectory of use where people who are smoking and looking to use an e-cigarette to quit smoking might see them go to a tobacco flavored e-cigarette. And then eventually as time goes, 
on, they will move away from the tobacco flavors and go to something else. Most surveys show that adults who have completely quit smoking tend to prefer fruit and dessert flavors. I mean, if you can think of a flavor, it's something that you could probably order and have customized to your preferences. That all seems uh, pretty reasonable, uh, maybe even too reasonable, given the degree of pushback out there, because I guess this recent announcement by the Trump administration that they are going to seek to ban these flavors. And then I guess there's action, at least in several localities, maybe in uh, Michigan, there too, because of health concerns or whatnot. Can you explain a little bit about the background there and why this is, you know, seems to be a very sudden push for all of this. Uh, so what what's going on now that has people trying to ban what seems like a good stepping stone for people to quit smoking? Right. Well, there's, first of all, I mean, I cannot emphasize enough that e-cigarettes are considered to be at least 95% safer than combustible cigarettes. And the key phrase there is safer. They're not 100% safe. They're not without their own risks, but they are 95% safer than combustible cigarettes. And that is, you know, really helps people move away from cigarettes, knowing that, knowing that information makes people more comfortable in using them. One of the issues though, is that no nicotine product is meant for youth, for adolescents. Certain states have implemented in tobacco 21 laws in order to keep tobacco products away from people who are under 21. But as with any new device or any new innovation, you are going to see a certain uptake in populations that aren't supposed to be using those devices. So when we've seen over the last two years, an increase in, um, in combustible use or sorry, in e-cigarette use among adolescents. And that's very concerning. In addition to that, Obviously, we have probably have to be living under a rock not to have been aware of um, deaths that have been attributed to vaping. But unfortunately, what's not always considered or isn't people aren't always aware of is that these deaths that are and illnesses that are attributed to vaping products other than e-cigarettes, so THC delivery um, or THC-containing vaping devices. And that's where you see a lot of hysteria, I guess, is a probably a good term for it. Not to say that the people who are using THC containing devices, uh, those deaths are very real to them and the illnesses are very real to the people who are experiencing them, but they are not attributed to nicotine and the regulated e-cigarettes that are currently on the market. Right. And I suppose I would say that using these vape products for marijuana delivery, I mean, that would be in violation of federal law and state law in most right, places. Right, right. And not coincidentally, most of the de- most of the illnesses that have happened with the THC vaping devices is in states with unregulated product or states that have prohibition. But, you know, these these two factors have really led states and now President Trump to want to halt e-cigarette youth in use and a very easy target for that is to target flavors because it's the perception is that flavored products are uniquely appealing to youth versus adults, which I would personally disagree with. I want to ask you the question of what's the case for this proposed ban and then also the case against it, because I think that based on the things I've seen from our street, it seems like that you are very much about the data 
and uh, that's that's what I've picked up on some of the things I've read from from you and, uh, for instance, your colleague Chelsea Boyd. What's the case for it? What's the case against it? And then, are the policymakers are they actually even looking at the data on this? I'll, I'll answer the last question first. I think that they are looking at some data, and they're not taking into consideration the totality of data. So the case for having a flavor ban is the data that they're looking at. You see an increase in youth use over the last two years, and you see surveys that are given that examine the patterns of youth use tend to show that youth, their first experience with an e-cigarette is some sort of flavor. So that would lead you to believe that if you you know had a ban on flavors, then youth use would drop. The case against that is, first of all, there's no guarantee that that would be true. What I'm most concerned about when it comes to tobacco use and nicotine use is what is the effect on combustible use? Because combustible use is the most dangerous thing a person can do pretty much across the board in life. And um, there might be an increase in e-cigarette. Well, there is an increase in e-cigarette use among youth. But what's really important is that we see huge decreases in combustible use among youth. It's been at the lowest it's ever been in recorded history. So this is great news. Also, a case against it is if you look at what adults use to remain abstinent from combustibles over time, we see that adults overwhelmingly prefer the same flavors that adolescents do. So really, you're put, you're pitting one against the other here, and you're saying that the administration and states that are considering these bans or municipalities that are considering these bans are really saying that they're more concerned about adolescent use than they are about having a pathway for adults who are trying to quit to remain abstinent. And I think that's a very unfair comparison when you don't have a guarantee that a ban would even work. I'm not a smoker. Uh, like like Josiah, I don't vape. Is there any appeal to someone who doesn't smoke? I mean, there must be some appeal. There must be more than one, more than zero people that have taken up vaping who didn't smoke. But there is some nicotine in it. But is is you know I. I there's sort of a culture behind smoking, I guess. And I, I, from what I hear, you know, there's people smoke to relax, I guess. Is there any sort of perceived benefit to vaping like this other than for an existing smoker who wants to wean themselves off of smoking? Um, I mean, there's, I know a fair amount of people that would argue that there, that nicotine, the benefits of nicotine are not widely studied. And I would agree with that. I mean, Nicotine is a, is a drug with negative consequences and positive benefits. And the positive benefits we don't know much about. We know a lot about the negative consequences, especially in the form of a delivery system that is so dangerous. I'm talking about combustible cigarettes here. There are very likely benefits of using nicotine, but not so much that we should be encouraging people who are not nicotine users to start using nicotine. But I, but I mean, I don't, I don't mean even necessarily a real benefit as much as like a perceived almost lifestyle benefit. Like, is there even an, a, any allure to it for somebody who doesn't smoke? I mean, if I want a sweet flavor, I can go, I can go drink, you know, boba tea or something. Right. I mean, and that's what most people, non-smoking adults do, right? They're not going to pick up a jewel because they want a flavor. Um, they'll probably pick up a pack of gum or, like you said, boba tea. But, you know, there's a lot of survey data saying that the vast majority of regular e-cigarette users are former or current smokers. And I think it's something like less than 1% of um, people who have never smoked before and then use an e-cigarette would go on to smoking. Somewhere between 5% and 15% of adults who have never smoked use e-cigarettes regularly. 
But I think it's important to say that these surveys are done from 18-year-olds to, you know, 65-year-olds or even older than 65. And so you're not maybe that 5 to 10% or 5 to 15% of people who have never smoked but now use e-cigarettes. What if they would have been smokers in the first place? Um, I think that's an important consideration. So it could have been that they are not, they didn't go on to combustibles if they would have otherwise and instead are just using e-cigarettes. Um, as far as a perceived benefit or, you know, some, a lifestyle, I've never, personally, I've never really encountered that in my life. I'd like to say it's my job. Of course, I've tried an e-cigarette a couple times in my life, but that's kind of, I just wanted to kind of know what it was like and it amounted to nothing more than that. Of course, I'm 41, so I get to do that. But so to answer your question, no, I don't think I don't think there's a huge uh, risk that people are going to start doing something. But even if they do, like I say, it's 95% safer. So if you're an adult and you choose to do it, personally, I say so be it. I mean, you are allowed to smoke actual cigarettes as an adult. Yeah, exactly. That is kind of one of the weird things is that if these regulations go through, then as I understand, I mean, you can still smoke regular cigarettes, which are pretty bad for you. And you could still vape as long as the vaping tastes like cigarettes. But you know, you would be deemed mature enough to actually smoke cigarettes, but not strawberry flavored vaping. Yes. <laughs> yes. In the eyes of, in the eyes of, and in the eyes of a lot of companies, you know, they, they, for whatever reason, you know, are very adamant that these products are meant for smokers. And like, well, do you have to start smoking in order for use of your product to be okay? Like, that's not fair. But that's, this is my personal opinion. This is not like the party line of our streets harm reduction program. This is just me talking on that. I know that we want to ask you about what's happening at the state level, because I think you've been focused on that recently. But can you, at, a, at least at a high level, can you explain what this recent ban is and how this might be implemented. And I guess my big question is, is there not legislation that's required to enact this this latest ban? Uh, I went to law school. That's the way I was taught legislation is that, you know, when you when you do something like this, it needs to be legislation. But I guess we're sort of in an age where there's a lot of things being done by executive order. So where are we on this ban and what would be the next steps? As so far as you can right tell? now, um, in the last week or so, we've seen two proposals to implement a full flavor ban, um, one at the federal level that uh, Trump announced a few days ago and uh, one in Michigan, at the state of Michigan, that would be a statewide flavor ban. And both of these proposals um, are done under a kind of an executive order or an emergency, under, this, under an emergency order. I, I don't know the ins and outs of the law well enough to know like how, how would that turn into a um, full lifelong ban? Um, I imagine it would have to be through a congressional order. But um, as far as Michigan goes, this emergency ban of flavors would be six months long. And during that time, they would try to get support from the state to implement a full ban for, you know, a permanent full ban. I know there's a lot of pushback from the state in Michigan. Michigan is a, I guess, a purple state. Is that the correct term? The legislature is uh, Republican. The governor is Democrat. And there's there's a lot of concern. I was at a public hearing that was uh, put together yesterday in Michigan to hear concerns or, um, you know, applause for the ban. And there was more concern than there was applause. And uh, it's, it's an important issue. I... I Hate to think that these states or Trump is kind of circumventing the law, especially when there are things in place right now in 
to, con- to take into consideration the flavor availability of e-cigarettes. The FDA has a process in place that is in the process of being implemented that will consider what flavors should be available and what, what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and what, how they should be sold and how they should be available to people. In terms of, you know, once this becomes something that is before a legislature, before Congress, where, where's the support coming from for this? I mean, assuming that there's support, is this getting bipartisan support, I guess, is the real question that I have for you is, is it primarily Republicans or Democrats or a combination? It's primarily Democrats, I think. Um, uh, yesterday, it was kind of interesting at the Michigan public hearing, the House Oversight Committee, one very uh, a Democrat on the committee who's very, very staunchly opposed to allowing flavors to be sold in the state of Michigan. So she was very for this uh proposed ban, you know, stated two or three times that this is the first time she she's ever agreed with Trump. She expects it'll be the last time she ever agrees with Trump. So I guess you could say that there is increasing support on the Republican side, but historically we've seen these prohibitions coming from the Democrats. I want to circle back to kind of where we where we started, uh, Josiah. Started explaining with your your background is in harm reduction strategies. Uh, to kind of take a step back from that, what all areas does this really apply to? Are there other areas besides obviously just vaping? You know that you apply this approach of harm reduction strategies. Uh, and let's talk about that just a little bit. Sure. So, well, first of all, I'll just tell you about our street harm reduction program, which is, you know, we aim for an integrated harm reduction approach to public health, to helping solve public health uh, issues. So our main focus areas right now are tobacco harm reduction, of course, it takes up a lot of our time, opioid harm reduction, uh, harm reduction interventions to promote sexual health. And it can take a whole gamut, a range of things. Uh, we hope to include nutrition and alcohol as well in the future. But, um, you know, I think one of the most well-known harm reduction programs out there or approaches is syringe exchange programs for injection drug use. Um, Injection drug use is, you know, known to be a primary reason that HIV is transmitted or a primary way that HIV is transmitted and a, uh, sorry, hepatitis C as well. So if you can provide clean needles to people who use drugs um, or who inject drugs, then you can really decrease the amount of uh, transmission that happens. This was this is hugely controversial. It's still very controversial in uh, more conservative areas of this country, but it does work. Um, and unfortunately, we've seen that in a crisis is when you get more support for you know, syringe access programs. For example, in Indiana in 2015, in Scott County, there was an outbreak of HIV. And prior to this outbreak, syringe access programs were were not able to be federally funded and were not really well received. After this outbreak, the state of Indiana did release funds to provide sterile syringes for people who use drugs. So it's kind of like a short, a very short history. Some of the concerns with opioid harm reduction is that it might, um, you know, increase drug use in areas because you have a tacit approval of drug use rather than just promoting an abstinence-only approach. Um, generally, actually, in areas that have harm reduction programs available, have a lower rate of drug use or have lower rates of drug use following the implementation of harm reduction. So we've seen some really positive benefits, but there are definitely concerns that are, uh, you know, that are valid. Let me ask this, because I think that there there seems to be a little bit maybe of a, a common thread on some of the harm reduction versus whatever it is that's going on with the 
justification for these flavor bans and other restrictions. You know, you mentioned when you were explaining harm reduction, this is going to be a weird example, but you were talking about seatbelts, right? This is something, you know, where people wear seatbelts that helps protect them if they get into an accident. But there is discussion in, you know, the academic literature or whatever about, well, maybe by having people wear seatbelts, they're going to feel... Uh, safer in the vehicle and so they're going to be less careful or drive riskier and that might lead to more accidents. There was a a famous economist, Gordon Tullock, who uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek proposed that really the way to deal with the problem of accidents is you need to replace airbags in cars with what he called a Tullock spike, which was basically, (laughs) uh, it's a, a giant spike that's embedded in the steering wheel. And if you get into an accident, the spike shoots out and it impales you. (laughs) So any accident that you have is going to be fatal. And the idea is, well, then you're going to be really, really careful. You're you're not going to do that. And so that, that sort of seems like, uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of comic, but I think it illustrates that there are, it seems like there are kind of two opposing philosophies of how to deal with these harmful situations. One is, you know, the harm reduction approach is let's find something that is not as harmful and, and, and make that more appealing, try and get people to switch off. And then the other is, no, 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 if we do that, then more people will do the whatever the bad thing is, because it's not quite so harmful to them. And so what we need to do is make it so that if you're going to do something that's harmful, it has to be the version that's really, really harmful. That's kind of a long-winded question, but I mean, what's your kind of take on that? Do you think that that's kind of where some of the thinking is behind uh, some of this stuff? I mean, I would really be disappointed if people were thinking, if you're going to use nicotine, please do it in the form of a combustible cigarette. But I have definitely heard concerns that there's like moral hazard associated with uh, harm reduction. Certainly I've heard that with regard to, you know, airbags and seatbelts in cars. And there's some, there's some, I don't think they're really well written and I think they're pretty uh, poorly researched, but there are some papers, academic papers that investigate the moral hazards associated with uh, naloxone distribution, which is a drug that is used to reverse an overdose, you know, showing that, and, and you hear anecdotal stories from people saying that, oh, you know, people who use opioids will have opioid or naloxone parties where they'll try to get as to as close to the brink of an overdose as they can to see what it's like. I mean, this is, in my opinion, utterly ridiculous. I've never heard of anything like that actually happening. Um, do people drive more, you know, less safe if accidents actually increased after the use or after the implementation of seatbelts or airbags? I actually have absolutely no idea. But as far as nicotine and com- and cigarettes go, like again, I think if 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 you can show that something is so much safer, and we've definitely done our research, we have a paper out on that's available on the R Street website, tobacco harm reduction evidence update. When you when you know that something is so much safer in toxicity and exposure and health outcomes, and it helps people quit combustible cigarettes, you don't see a huge gateway effect in uh, youth. Does it matter if more people are using it? I mean, there's an argument to be made that it should not matter. Okay. All right. Well, uh, on that note, I think we'll end it. Uh, Carrie, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on.